Well, sometimes the, the messenger is a message, and uh, that's the case there. Thank you so much. I want you to turn to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 2, early on Genesis chapter 2. I want to talk to you this morning for the third message on the Lordship of Christ, and uh, I trust we will finish this little series of messages this morning. Everybody, including you, is attracted to success, and we are repulsed by failure, and yet we don't learn anything through success, or we learn very little of any consequence. The major lessons we learn in life are through failure. If you go through the bookstore, Paul and I were in the bookstore the other day looking at some things. There are lots of books about success. Uh, Lots of books. Uh, There are no books about how to be a failure. One of my uh, favorite writers um, wrote a book about failure called Failing Forward. It's an outstanding book. It's an outstanding book. I remember um, when I was with my pastor friends, I usually take a handful of books and read those. And probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I had that with me. Read that book, and it made such a profound impact on my life. I said, I want my my sons to read this. And I remember I, I gave it to some of them. Jonathan came back to me later after I sent him that book, and he said, Daddy, that was really a that was really a good book. I said, Was it? I said, I almost didn't have you read it or send it to you because I didn't know if you would appreciate the message of it. He said, it was really good. I said, I know it was. The author, I heard him talk about that book, and he said that that was, of all the books that he wrote, that was the one that sold the least. He said, I probably should have repurposed the title. People weren't attracted to the title. I don't even know. Maybe it still is. It's even published anymore. But a great, great book. On failure, we we are enamored with success. Success. It's such an important pursuit that that failure over a period of time leads us into depression and can cause suicide. There are certain cultures that success is so important. It's true in the American culture, but other cultures that early on, even in their 20s and their 30s. If you do not reach these predetermined goals, that people will take their lives because they've shamed their families. I know I've lived long enough where I've had uh, friends of mine that from all appearances externally that uh, are successful, they have money, they have, quote, security in the sense that most people seek it. But they end up taking their lives. I believe they have discovered that what they were pursuing did not satisfy their heart's desire. There's a biblical principle before we get into some of the verses and texts I want to look at this morning. I want to give you a Bible verse to memorize. You can jot it down and uh, memorize this verse this week. It's easy to memorize. It's about happiness and fulfillment. 
Because you don't find happiness. Happiness finds you as you surrender yourself to find God's purpose. If you ever decide, well, I'm going to be a happy person. I'm going to be a successful person. Because those are kind of synonymous to us. So I'll give myself to find that. You're never going to find it. You're going to be miserable. You're going to make everybody else miserable. But when you forget about that, and you just take that totally off the table. And you say, I am going to give myself to finding God's purpose for my life. And surrendering myself to doing what God wants me to do. Then you will be successful and you'll be happy. Here's the verse I want you to look at. Or not in your text. It's on the screen for you. But I want you to write it down. And memorize it this week. It's easy to learn. In fact, it's in all the Gospels expressed in different words. Here it is in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39. Jesus said, He that findeth his life, he that findeth his life shall lose it. Oh man, I I found a good job. I found the perfect person. I found the perfect church. And the emphasis there is I. I found. It's all about me. I'm centric in this equation. He that findeth his life, I'm finally living. The Bible says you'll lose it. And it's not just talking about in eternity. It means in this life you're going to lose it. He that findeth his life shall lose it. But from the perspective of other people, he that loseth his life. And you're not trying to have a good life. You're not trying to win. You're just trying to do the Father's will. You're trying to obey the Lord. You put your your life at the disposal of God to surrender yourself to do what He wants you to do. He that loseth his life, Jesus said, for my sake, watch this, shall find it. You'll find life. That's an oxymoron. Wonderful, wonderful truth. As long as you are in charge of your life, you will never find the meaning of life. You'll never find joy. Never. From the beginning of time, a theme has surfaced. We're going to look at this in a moment. Between God and man that has continued until this day. And it has to do with the principle of authority. And here is the issue. Who is in charge? Who is in charge? Until you settle that issue, you're going to be either miserable or you're going to be joyful. Who's in charge of your life? Because it, it's not just a daily struggle. It's a moment-by-moment struggle. Who's in charge of this situation? Am I going to get angry about this because I'm late? Because I can't help that the lights turn red? And I, Am I going to get angry at my situation because God permitted these things? Who's in charge? God will put us in in uncomfortable situations to let us know that, hey, I'm in charge. Warren Wiersbe coined a phrase years ago that I never forgot. And here's what he said. God is more concerned with with your character than he is your comfort. Because he knows that when your character is developed, that that's what matters. That that's what's fulfilling, not your comfort. God is more concerned with your character than your comfort. Notice in your Bible, as you turn to Genesis 2, early on here, in verse 15, and you'll see here that God is very clear that He is the ultimate authority. And He speaks to Adam and Eve here early on. 
Genesis 2.15, And the Lord God took the man, first Adam before he created Eve, watch this, and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So here he gives him a responsibility. Adam has no say in this. He said, I want you, this is your job, to dress the garden. Uh, your, that's your work. And, and to, to keep it. The word keep means to guard, uh, to protect. He didn't have to protect it from sin at that point. Maybe the, the hedges needed trimming. There weren't any weeds. I don't know what, what all that implied there. To keep it. But he said, this is, this is your task. God gave him a job. This is your job. There, there was no voting on it. This is your job. God has a job for you too. You don't get to vote on it. God hardwired you for something. He gave you talents. He gave you gifts. He gave you dispositions. He gave you a certain personality. And you can try to do a lot of things, but until you do what God has made you to do, you'll never be happy. He's in charge. God is in charge. God has given a responsibility here. Notice the next verse. And the Lord God commanded. So here he not only gives a a responsibility, he gives a prohibition. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every, watch how this is phrased, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. You can have anything in this garden you want. Now think of this. It's not been tainted by sin. Now they couldn't eat any meat yet. That didn't happen until after the flood. But can you imagine how good this fruit tasted? You can have any, anything in this garden that's growing on these trees. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's, there's one tree you can't partake of. Just one. You can have anything but one. Now look at this. The Bible says, The Lord God commanded, Thou shalt not. This is a prohibition. Thou shalt not eat of it. So he gives him a responsibility. Then he gives him a, a prohibition. And he's saying, here's what he's saying. Now I'm in charge. Now I'm going to give you a lot of latitude. Um, this is your job. Now you can do your job in a lot of ways. But this is your job. And God tells you, I have a will for, for your life. And... Um, There's a lot of things you can do within that will, but I'm in charge here. And I'm also in charge where where there's some prohibitions in your life that that I don't want you to do some things. By by the way, there's on the positive too, there's some thou shouts in the Bible. And then he attaches a penalty to this. For in the day that thou shalt, that thou eatest thereof, that is of the tree of the garden, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of it, the Bible says, thou shalt, watch this, God says, thou shalt surely die. You're going to die. And, and, and surely, certainty, you're going to die. He said, now I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge of your responsibility, of your prohibition. I'm in charge of your, of your punishment, if you violate that. Now, there's a lot of teaching here, but there's, there's no way... There's no way from the earliest moment of creation when there's no sin yet that you can read that and deduct from it that man is in charge. None. Now, he has some freedoms. He has some liberties, but they're God-given. 
But God is saying, I am in charge. Now, this does not mean that God is, uh, is an ogre. In fact, in the text there, in verse 15, the Bible says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. The garden of Eden. You know what the word Eden mean? It means pleasure. God said, I'm going to put you and soon to be your wife in a garden of joy, a garden of peace, a garden of great pleasure. I love what Adrian Rogers said. He said, whenever God says, thou shalt not, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. And whenever he says, thou shalt, he's saying, help yourself. In other words, God puts up these hedges, He puts up these, these barriers to protect us. And when He tells us to do something, it's to help us. God's not trying to keep you from something other than pain and sorrow. And when God asks you, He commands you to do something, it's for your benefit and for your good. But you know the story, we'll look at it in just a moment. Man rebelled. Sin came into the world, and the effects of that sin in our body and in our spirit live forth today in us and in our children and in our children's children. Here's what's interesting. Before Genesis 2, before God created Adam, rebellion was already in the universe. Satan had rebelled against God, and... uh, he said, I, I'm going to, this is all in Isaiah 14. We're not going to look there because of time. Ezekiel 28. He said, I'm going to be my own authority. If you know the text there, he said, I'm going to be like the Most High. Because I can't be above him, but I'm going to be like him. I'm going to have equal authority. I'm not going to be submitted to him. And there were three angels. There were Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Michael was in charge of communication with people. Whenever you read, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Michael was in charge of war. Whenever you read Michael in the Bible, he was always in charge of of battles and fighting, especially in spiritual warfare. Gabriel was in charge of communication. And when you read Gabriel's name in the Gospels, he was always giving messages from God to people, especially in the Christmas story. Lucifer was in charge of worship. He was um, fascinating to read about in Ezekiel 28. He was, he was almost like a, um, I don't want to get too detailed in this, like a walking instrument. Let, let me just say this, just, just a little bit to, to maybe get you to study this. Satan knows more about music than anybody in this room. Anybody in this room. He led music in heaven. There's an old saying because... Preachers had a lot of trouble uh, with, with the musicians. And they'd say, when Satan fell, he fell on the choir loft. Amen. Yeah, yeah. And the leader of the choir is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm going to leave that. I shouldn't have done that after last Sunday. <laughs> but... But there's more to it than just the unity issue. There, there's an issue of, of the whole matter of music. Now, let me say this, and I'll just move on. Music is not all moral. 
I've heard people say, oh, oh, music just amoral. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now, there is some music that is not moral or immoral, but music in itself is not amoral. You, you go to the vilest places on the planet, and there's, there's only one type of music they play. It is not. And that's not my teaching this morning, other than that, that Lucifer, who knew about music, and he knows more about music than anybody here, and he's a great deceiver. And he always works on half-truths. In Revelation chapter 12, it gives an example of this, verse 7 through 9, of what happened. This is for creation. And there was war in heaven. Michael, this was the angel in charge of war. And his angels fought against the dragon. Now the dragon is a metaphor for Lucifer, as we'll see. And the dragon fought in his angels. So each one had one third. Ephesians 6 says the angels have different ranks. So Michael had, had, was in charge of a third, Gabriel was in charge of a third, and Lucifer was in charge of a third. And so Lucifer created this rebellion against God, and the, the key word that is rebellion, before Adam was created against God. And the Bible says in the dragon, that's Lucifer, will send him on the fault, and his angels, all of his angels that God had created, but he prevailed not. Neither was, watch this, their place, that is the dragon and his angels, Lucifer and his angels, found any more in heaven. Now why? And the great dragon was cast out. Now watch this. That old serpent called, and here he gives his different names, the devil and Satan. Now, watch this. Here's his mode of operation, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth. Now, watch this. And his angels were cast out with him. You know who his angels were? They were his demons, his minions. So Satan is real. His, his angels, his demons are real. Hebrews chapter 12 says that angels are innumerable. There is no number that we, we have for them. So one-third of a numeral is, is a heap. And so here's what happens is you have Satan was his third that rebelled against God and his authority. And their primary mode of dealing with you and me is with deception. And there's a lot of applications of that. But here's the application this morning. One of his goals in deception, are you listening? Is to lie about God's authority. And that's what I want to leave with this morning. He will lie to you about authority. Oh, you can get by with this. God, God's not concerned about this. Oh, that's just the pastor's opinion. Well, you know, some things are my opinion. And when I stand here, I try to tell you, now, this is, this is just what I believe. And I think it's right, but this is what I believe. Now, I usually don't do that because the pulpit is too sacred for that. But every now and then I'll say, this is what I think because it, I think it would help. But we, we'll go through, in any given service, 20 to 30 verses, if not more. And we'll put them up on screen to give more time. And I'll say, underline this, mark this, and I explain things. 
Because this is a text-driven, Bible-believing, hopefully Bible-practicing church. And I don't want you to be deceived about what the truth says. And the deceiver, Satan, the dragon, Lucifer, will deceive you about the authority of God. And the matters about human authority, but about God's authority. Now turn the page, you're in Genesis 2, look at Genesis 3. Now, God's created Eve for Adam. And notice in the introduction of Satan in the Bible, the first mention of the devil. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. This is the first mention of Satan in our Bible. Now, he's acted before this because we see this in other places. But as far as the Bible is concerned, this is the first mention of Satan. You know how he's described? Genesis 3 1. Now, the serpent, here it is, was more subtle than any beast of the field. He was possessing a snake. And the Bible said, because snakes are subtle, Satan was subtle. The word there means crafty. That's his nature. He's a deceiver. He is a crafty deceiver, which the Lord God had made. And he said, and some people that reject creation, that believe in evolution, said that, well, Satan's uh, animals can't talk. Well, they can if they're possessed by, by the devil. Balaam had a donkey talk to him. In fact, this, this uh, apparently this, uh, this snake could walk, or at least had some legs. I've read where that they, uh, you can do this research on their own. Where they had these snakes that they found these two little uh, bony structures down at the bottom of their, you know, trunk. And they couldn't explain it. And they called them vesicle organs. I think it's spelled V-E-S-T-I-G-A-L. And so uh, for many years they... People said, we had those. Humans had those. Appendix were vesicle organs. Tonsils were vesicle organs. People that are my age or close to it, most of you, uh, had your tonsils out when you were younger. Well, now they discovered that those were buffers to be able to help you. And they said, well, your tonsils have no purpose. Your, your, your uh, appendix have no purpose. Did you know that if you don't understand something, if God put it there, that you don't need to understand it, that later on you may find out that it has a purpose? And, and to the evolutionist, a vesicle organ is something that was left over from evolution. And so what they did is they said that well, these, these leftover organs are, are vesicle organs from, that we can't understand in the serpent. You say, well, how do you know that 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 serpent could walk or had some type of a apparatus where they could at least stand up. Remember the curse on the serpent, Genesis 3, that from now on you're going to have to slither around in the dust? That was a curse. You see, the Bible is not a science book, but where it speaks about science, it's accurate. The Bible here says that the serpent was more subtle, it's crafty. And he said unto the woman... And watch this, watch his approach. Number one, he questions God's words. Yea, hath God said. 
And he'll do that with you. And did God, do, did God say this? Now, young people, listen to me. Listen to me. Where you go to school is important. And who your teachers are are important. And I don't care how many doctor's degrees they have behind their name until they look like a thermometer. When they get up and they say, has God said, you always stand with the Word of God and the God of the Word. Always. Always. Romans chapter 1 says that people will exchange the truth. Because you really can't change the truth. The truth doesn't change. But they they exchange truth for a lie. And and they make themselves wise, but they become fools. And uh, don't don't let a a, a tremendous vocabulary and a powerful intellect overwhelm you. I'm careful with my my grandkids. I say, what have you been learning in school? What's been going on at school? Talked to my son John. He teaches in a school up in Chattanooga in public education. He told me some things that were happening, some stuff that they had to go through. Um, they had a big thing up at uh, Howard this last week where he was at. It was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. He was so discouraged. He's up there trying to help those kids. It's so discouraging. You be careful, kids, and parents, you be careful. My daughter April came home from, uh, I've told you this before, but I'll say it again. Came home from uh, Calhoun Community College, and there's some Christian teachers there. I thank God for them. But the textbooks are not Christian, and some of the teachers aren't Christian. You understand? And she was taking psychology, which is a dangerous course. The word psychology comes from the Greek word suke, which means soul. The best book on the soul is the Bible. Secular psychology, Sigmund Freud, and all these people are out to destroy the Bible. They start to, to equate it with the Bible and then to diminish it. Well, the Bible is not, it's not adequate. And even so-called Christian counseling mimics our... The Bible just kind of throws in a Bible verse or two, and it's nothing but warmed over psychology. So I said, well, show me your schedule. She sat down. I said, well, let me see your textbook. You know how expensive they are now. And now they're in binders. They're not even in in hardback anymore. So we sat down and went through it and went back to the index. I looked up three or four things, four or five topics, turned to those. This took about three or four minutes. It didn't take long at all. And I sit on her bed and I read this. I said, well, let's read this. She said, wow. Let's turn over. Let's read this. After about three of those, she said, Daddy, how did you know that was in there? I said, I, I did, and I've never seen that book. It's the first time I've ever picked it up. And so I'll tell you something, there's a whole lot more in there. And I said, whenever, whenever the teacher stands up, you're going to be impressed by what they say and how they say it. But you need to understand that God's truth prevails. What the enemy says is, hath God said? And then he says, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Not only does he question God's word, he questions God's goodness. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Notice how he reverses it. That's not what God said. 
God said, you can eat out of anything here. You see how he reversed? See how he focuses on the negative? God said, you, you can't. There's something you can't do. God said, you can't have all, everything. God said, you can have anything you want but one. So the devil comes in. He'll do this with you. He'll focus in on that one thing and get you to question on the goodness of God. Why has God allowed this to happen to me? Why, why has God done all these other things for me? Why has God given me these, these other blessings? And he begins to play with our minds. And then he denies the word of God. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said, Watch him deny the word of God. Ye shall not surely die. No, you're not going to die. He's a liar. Remember his mode of operations is deceptiveness. You're not going to die. Now, this is Genesis chapter 3. I don't have time to show you. But the key phrase in Genesis chapter 5 is three words. Three words. And he died. 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 You see, Adam and Eve rejected God's authority. And they listened to the lie of the enemy who had rebelled against God. And when they rejected God's authority, there were consequences... And now we, because of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, and we have the same seed in us that's going to go down to our children and our children's children because it's infected the entire human race. And here it is. It's to reject the authority of God. Now, this is so simple, but it's so profound. And it's so dangerous. You know, I'm going to preach on this sometime. With all of these shootings that are going on. You have the liberals that say, well, here's what it is. It's, it's, it's a problem with guns. It's a problem with guns. Well, there's a whole lot of drunks. I, a bunch of my friends have been killed by drunk drivers. Let's pull the alcohol out. You know it wasn't the car's fault. Let's pull the alcohol out. No alcohol. None. I've planned their funerals. I've identified their bodies. Don't, don't tell me. I despise it. Okay? I despise it. But you won't hear that. So the, liberal, the liberals are saying, well, it's the guns. Here's what the conservatives are saying. You heard this on all the news channels last week. Well, we've got to do something about mental illness. We've got to pass some laws about mental illness. Those aren't the issues. That is not the issue. You know what the issue is? It is a rebellion against God's authority. God says, you know what? You want to pull me out of your schools? You want to pull me out of the consciousness of your society? You want to pull me out of the mind and hearts of your children? Then then the, the punishment is the fruit of the sin. I really don't even have to judge you. The judgment is a result of your own sin. 
after years and years and decades and decades. And I haven't heard a voice. There may have been one. But I haven't heard voices, many, none that I heard dealing with that. And I heard a few, a few that were saying about the fatherlessness in the homes. But I'll tell you one thing, if you get those two things worked out, but it's not going to work overnight. It's not going to work overnight. This, this seed of anti-authority. Did you see a few weeks ago in the news where in New York City where the people were pouring water over the policemen's heads? Did you see that? Anybody see that? And the mayor was just doing nothing. And the police were just having to go about their jobs. They were even throwing the buckets at them. Do Google on it when you get home. And they wonder, how come we can't recruit people to be policemen? Who wants to do that? Who wants someone up in your face barking at them, doing their job? There is a rebellion against God's authority, which is symptomatic and rebellion against all kinds of other authority. Now, let me give you a scripture verse, and I'll give you some application. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have sinned. All of us. We have turned everyone. All of us. Everyone. Now, now here, here's the word. Here's the phrase. It's to his own way. Don't, don't miss that. To his own way. What does that mean? Well, it, it literally means my way or the highway. The Hebrew word means, it means a road that you consistently walk. It has to do with the course of life that you usually take. All we like sheep have grown, gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is my way. It is selfishness. It is an independence from God where I'm going to do my own thing. That's what it's saying. It's not just moral sin, it is at the heart of it. S-I-N, and the center word of sin, or the center letter, is I. It's about me. It's my way. And then I want you to notice, here's the hope. Look at the rest of the verse. And the Lord hath laid on him, this is Christ, when he was on the cross, the iniquity of us all. Jesus laid, God the Father laid on Jesus our iniquity. You know what iniquity is? A transgression is when you cross a line. That's when you willfully sin. Sin is when you just miss the mark. And I, I can't live right. Iniquity is, is that inward crookedness. It's that selfishness. Now watch this. The Lord hath laid on Christ my iniquity. Jesus not only died for my transgressions. He not only died for my sins, He died for my selfishness. Jesus died for my rebellion. And there's hope for every person in here where you do not have to be a rebellious sinner. You do not have to be a selfish person. You you do not have to be living a life that's independent of God and bondage to that. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. To present your bodies. And notice the word brethren there. You come to Christ, you've repented of your sin, repented of your attitude towards God, and then I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you come to Him and say, God, I present my body. The word present means to lay it lay close to hand. It has the idea of yieldedness, but it means to come up close to and just be available. That's what it means. God, I make my body available to you. I surrender to you. I give you my body. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. Neither yield ye your members, your body members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't don't submit your, your body as a weapon for sin. But yield, submit your your body members unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And your members, your body members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Every day, every moment, you've got to surrender your mind, your eyes, your tongue, the way you walk, everything. And the way you do that is through the Lordship of Christ. He's the ruler of everything. Of everything. This runs counter to what I want to do because I want to run my life, even though I'm saved. Now, let me mention some things here and give you some practical things to think about here. Number one, the Lordship of Christ affects my personal worship. It affects my personal worship because I only worship that which is greater than me. If I, if I do not have a high view of God, I won't worship Him. He's not my buddy. He's not my cool dude. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's a great God. Yes, He's my Abba Father. He's my kind Heavenly Father. But he, He's the sovereign. He's the Lord. He's the Master. He's the Creator. Um. I remember when we lived in Washington, D.C., one of my dear friends there was uh, a guy named George, and he was a Secret Service agent. And so if you would come visit us, we would go up to the White House at night. I don't think you can do this anymore because of security. And so about eight thirty, nine o'clock at night, you'd have to run your Social Security number. They'd give you a little thing you put around your neck. I remember it was black and yellow with kind of diagonal things on it. And we would going to all over the White House. Uh, the cabinet room, which is right by the Oval Office. You, know, you still remember the layout. The barber shop, the theater, the Oval Office. Um, other places. It was a remarkable thing. I remember seeing, walking in saying, I, remember, I know that guy, there's a chief of staff. And, you know, just a little youth pastor walking in, and you're walking in with your friends. One time we were walking in, Reagan was in office, and his his uh, moniker was Rawhide. And uh, George was with us, and a guy came through. He said, you need to pull these guys over here. We moved over. And he talked to us for about two or three minutes. He said, we go back. He said Reagan was walking down the hall. So, wow, it was like 9 o'clock at night. 
that, that gives you a heady feeling. You're in the most powerful building in the world, in the power, most powerful office. If, and those things, because we did that a number of times with our friends. In fact, when we get with those people, we, we still talk about it. How much more impressive is it to spend time with the creator of the universe? That's just petty stuff. Could it be that your worship life is shallow because of your view of God? That your heart never sings because he is not worthy, which is the where we get the word worship from? He's not worthy. A lady whose daughter was sick in the Bible, a Canaanite woman, she came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 25. The Bible says she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She came and worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. Remember the first time you saw the ocean? I remember, I think I was 15 years old. I was overwhelmed. I had seen Gunner's Full Lake. I thought that was something. Wow, that was incredible. Never seen anything like that. Remember, I saw the Grand Canyon in 1981. I've heard people say, oh, it's just a big ditch. I had a different impression. It came because of of the flood, I believe. And Genesis, wow. And it's beautiful as the sun goes down. It's it's unbelievable to see the different layers, see what God has made. Go up the White Mountains in New Hampshire when there's no light pollution and a clear night. Some of you have done this in Montana and see, see the stars that you can't see in our area because of all of the lights. It's breathtaking. The songwriter said, have you noticed the, the phrase, Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see thy, and so forth. Oh, Lord, my God, then sings my soul. After his, his soul sings, when he sings the might of his God. The Lordship of Christ affects my personal worship. You know, if you stay inside all the time, if you don't get past, past your little world and see God is big. Number two, the Lordship of Christ affects my ability to have peace. The Lordship of Christ affects my ability to have peace. When He's Lord and He's in charge, I'm able to leave things with Him. Someone said that worry is assuming God's responsibility. Some of you this morning are carrying things that God never intended for you to carry. You're walking around with these things, these burdens... And you're frazzled, your stress levels up, and, and it's affecting everything about you. I don't know why I was like this. Maybe you're like this, but if we were driving with our family, especially with our kids, at night and somebody else was driving, I couldn't go to sleep even if I was tired. I couldn't drive, but I couldn't go to sleep. Because I, was, I couldn't rest because I was afraid, what if they have a wreck? Anybody else like that? I want to, I'm responsible, and, and they're, you know, it's not because Paula can't drive or whoever's there. What if they have a wreck? My dad was a professional driver. 
this is a wonderful illustration. When my dad drove, when my daddy drove, I fell asleep every time. You know why? And I'm not talking about the bus. I'm talking about in the car. Because I knew I was in good hands. I knew nobody could drive like my dad. We were in great hands. We went to the LSU game years ago, 1985, down in Baton Rouge. And we were getting back because it was a night game. We drove all night to get back here so I could preach on Sunday morning. And uh, him and mom were in the front seat and I was in the back. We rented a car. And uh, he was driving pretty fast on the interstate. Remember, I'd look up there and say, oh, man, Dad, 100 miles an hour. And uh, my brother was a junior. And so Mom had some stuff up in the window. You know, you could tell he was on the team. Daddy had on red pants and a white shirt and a hat. Well, I was sound asleep in the back seat. All of a sudden, blue light. Pulls him over, and I'm thinking, well, he's going to get a bad ticket. And I just lay down in the back like a dead man. I woke up by then. Daddy got out. Cop came up. He said, what are you doing? He said, well, i got to get home. Said, Been down to the game? He said, yep. And they talked about that. I said, well, your son played down there. He said, yeah. What's his name? Because this was an Alabama trooper. All right. He said, well, I guess that's him in the back seat, isn't it? Well, you need to be safe. You go on. They said, well, okay, thank you. Daddy gets in and heads home. I went back to sleep. When my dad drove, he was a good driver. God will take better care of his stuff than you will yours. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, the prisoner of the Lord. He's in prison. And he says, watch, he's the prisoner of the Lord. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And he could have said God or Christ. I'm the prisoner of Christ, but he's the prisoner of the Lord. But when you're in a bad place, when you're in a tough place in life, say, God, I'm here because you put me here. Bruce Larson was a a Christian and businessman. Sometimes he counseled people. And uh, they would struggle. They had some spiritual issues. And so he had an office in New York City. Uh, very wealthy man. They, people come to see him. And uh, they just couldn't settle this thing of lordship. He'd say, I'm going to take you somewhere. And he'd take them down the street there on Fifth Avenue, New York City, to the RCA building. I'm assuming this is still there. I've seen a picture of it. And there in the lobby of the RCA building, some of you may have seen it, is a gigantic statue of Atlas. This well-proportioned man, muscle straining. He's holding the world on his shoulder, barely able to stand up under the burden. Just barely holding the world. Larson said, now that's, that's one way to live, trying to hold the world on your shoulders. But now, come across the street, I'll show you something else. And right across the street was St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he walked in there, and there was... The little boy Jesus, about nine years old, he said. And with no effort, he's just standing there holding the world in his hand. And Larson said, that's the other way to live. You have a choice. You can either carry the world on your shoulders or you can let him carry the world 
for you. The Lordship of Christ affects the peace of God in your life. Number three, the Lordship of Christ affects the way that I see my life. You're either an owner or you're the manager. The manager, the word manager in the Bible is the word steward. If you're the owner, you're responsible for everything. But you're not. You're, you're the steward. You manage what he gives to you. My brother is a good cook, and a lot of people have asked him. They said, well, hey, if you will, if you will uh, open up a barbecue place, we'll kind of finance it. We'll help you because you're, you're a good cook. You run the place, and we'll, we'll front some money. And I heard him, talked to him. Hoss said, Rick, I will never do that. I'll never run a restaurant. I said, why? He said, because it owns you. He said, you can't take time off. And he said, even when you're off and you've got to, he said, I'll never, I'll never run a restaurant. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? He said, I'd, I'd rather steward what someone has given to me. The Lordship of Christ impacts the way that you see your life. In Romans chapter 14, verse 8, notice what the Bible says. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. The way I live my life now. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. That's in His hands. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, this purpose, Christ both died, rose, revived, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. For why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We're going to give an account to him as the Lord. If it's not your jurisdiction, it's none of your business. Let me give you a little, little statement that will help you with your life. It's not my, I don't have an opinion on it. It's not my jurisdiction. What do you think about I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. That's not my, I'm not going to be judged for that. What do you think about their family? I, I don't have an opinion about that. That's, I'm not going to be held account for that. But what do you think about that church? I, I'm not the pastor of that church. I won't be held an account for that. I'll be held account for this church. You'll, some, some of you have a lot of stress in your life because you're nosy. Because you have a judgment on everybody else's stuff rather than your jurisdiction. And you've set other people at naught, and you're so critical. And here's what he says. He says, you're going you're gonna to hold an account for your own self. And this, this, is what, this is my patch of ground. This is what God has given to me, and I've got plenty to hold account for. Then, last of all, I'll just mention this. The Lordship of Christ affects my lifestyle. It affects my lifestyle, the way that I live. You know, um, most of us, here's the way we want to live. We want to approach the Lord with a contractual thing. Rather than trusting Him, we want to say, okay, I've always wanted to live close to the beach, so we'll put that down. Or in the mountains, whichever you like. I've always wanted this kind of house. And I've always wanted to have X amount of kids 
and I've always wanted. Now, are you tracking with me? Are you getting this? I, 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 I. So we filled this out. I, 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 I. I. Boy, that was good. Lord, will you sign off on that? I don't think so. Says, tell you what. Says, let me give you a piece of paper. He gives us a blank piece of paper. You sign the bottom, and then give it to me, and I'll write in the details. And the Lordship of Christ affects the way that you live your life. Everything about the way that you live your life. Since Jesus is Lord and He is Lord, the only response I have is to completely surrender Him. And I would ask you this morning, is He your Lord? He is the Lord, but is He your Lord? You see, I I believe this with all my heart, that God always gives His best to those who live the choice to Him every time. Always gives His best to those who live the choice to Him. And you don't just surrender at one time and that's it. You'll surrender over and over and over and over again. About about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I had some blood tests. And one of the things, which I have these regularly, came up. And the doctor came in and said, we're, we're, we're going to need to watch this marker. I don't like this marker. Right now, it's it's... It's out of range, but I'm not comfortable with it. We're going to watch it. Then in August, a year ago, in August, I had another blood test. And uh, it had increased. He said, I want you to come back in six months. And we need to get serious. And if it's gone up again, we're going to maybe have to do a biopsy. I'm thinking, oh, man. So I'm praying and saying, well, how do I fix that? So I went in in April and I had the, had the blood test. And sure enough, it had gone up significant. And they said, this is, this is not good. We're going to refer you to a specialist. And I called a couple of friends of mine that had had uh, this type of cancer. And I said, what do you, what do you think about this? And they said, this is, this is a, a cause for concern because of the it's gone up so so fast and so forth. So I said, okay. So we set the date for the biopsy and had the biopsy done, which is not a lot of fun. Some of you have gone through all that. And I told a few people, didn't tell a lot, there was nothing I could do about it. I could pray about it. One day, about six weeks ago, I don't know, uh, Rebecca was here, Eric's daughter, Debbie's daughter too. And she she was struggling. I said, how you doing? We started talking. I said, hey, guess what? I said, we're going to be biopsy buddies. She said, really? I said, yeah. I said, I got to have biopsy. And I had tried to encourage her in the past. But when I told her this, she, she leaned into me. She went home, back to her home in Indiana, right? And she wrote me back. She sent me a song. 
she wrote me, I wrote her back, and we engaged, which we had communicated before, but we were engaged, and then so forth. So I did really good. I just told a handful of people because there's nothing I could do about it. So the day came when they said, okay, we got the results back, and you need to come in. And so Paula said, I'm going to go with you, which I really didn't want her to go. So she gets in the car, and she's driving. And we're backing out of the driveway, and I said, I'm really nervous. I said, I haven't been nervous till today. I got a, today's judgment day. <laughs> the truth is, the day before was, and the other day was. Nothing had changed. The only thing that changed was the reality of the finality of, okay, I'm going to find out something. So, so I go in there and uh, I sit down. I am, I'm a little nervous. I don't know what's going to happen. Then I'm thinking, okay, what if they say it's positive? Now, okay, I got to handle this in a Christ like spirit. Then I got to practice what I preach. I got to do what God says. So I'm thinking that. If they say it's negative, then it's great. But if it's positive, am I going to rest in the goodness of God? And all of these thoughts. So on that day, he was a little busier than usual. So we sit in that room too long. (laughs) So finally, we heard some rustling outside the door. Then the door opened. And as soon as he opened the door, he walked in. He said, well, good news, there's no cancer. And then he sat down and he talked to us about the test and so forth. But I'll tell you a story. In that same office with that same doctor, and maybe in that very same room, one of my dearest friends had got different news where he said it is cancer. Now, was God any better to me than he was to my friend? You know why? Because Paul said, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. I'm the prisoner of the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And I am going to unconditionally surrender myself to who he is and for what he's done and what he's going to do. And trust myself to his good heart. Because he's the Lord. Is he your Lord? Are you wrestling with him over something? Have you ever fully surrendered your life to him as your king? Would you do that today? Would you bow your heads with me?